December 7th, 1941. The date which will live in infamy. Pearl Harbor. One of the greatest surprise attacks in human history. Japanese naval forces planned and they executed an attack on one of the United States' premier naval bases on Oahu, a strategic location in the Pacific Ocean. The attack took 2,390 American lives. In the words of President Franklin D. Roosevelt, it was an unprovoked and dastardly attack, but it was also unexpected. Although there was growing animosity between the Japanese Empire and the United States of America, although high-ranking U.S. officers had reported assessments of Pearl Harbor's vulnerability months before the attack, the American Navy was not prepared. PearlHarbor.org claims three critical factors, three factors contributing to the Navy's ill-preparedness at Pearl Harbor. Number one, planes not ready. Airfields did not lack in supply around Oahu, but all of the planes were parked wingtip to wingtip, without fuel and without ammunition, unable to respond to the Japanese aerial attack. Number two, the weapons, not ready. Equipment was set up for inspection, not action. Ammunition was locked up, ships docked in the harbor, they were sitting ducks with little to no defense. Number three, soldiers, not ready. It was a Sunday morning. Many sailors were on leave in Honolulu when the attack began. No one expected that a Sunday morning routine would end with dodging bullets and running from explosions. This was not a drill. And so some speculate, could we have been more prepared? What if we had the planes and the weapons ready? What if the soldiers were trained and expecting the attack amidst the growing animosity between the two countries? And considering the strategic position of Pearl Harbor, what if? Well, the reality is, who knows? Who knows? how that might have affected or changed history. But Summit Bible Church, I have a question for you. Are we ready for certain spiritual attack? Are we prepared? Or will we be caught off guard and hit by surprise when the enemy attacks us? Of course, this is not physical attack, but the spiritual attack, the spiritual war that every Christian is engaged in. Are we ready? Or, or the question is rather, will our weapons of warfare be ready? Ready? Will we take up the whole armor of God and be prepared? Why don't you turn open your Bibles again to Ephesians chapter 6. If it's your first time with us, uh, we've been moving through the epistle of Ephesians, and we're nearing the end here. We're in chapter 6. We've come to verses 14 to 17. These are famous verses, famous words written by the Apostle Paul, describing the armor of Christ, 
This armor that we're called to put on so that we can be prepared to stand in the evil day, to stand against spiritual attack. And last week, we got through the first half of the armor, the first three pieces, and this week we'll continue with the final three pieces. But I want to remind us of the purpose of the armor. Do you remember the purpose? The purpose was that we would be able to stand, to stand. You see that right in the beginning of 14, verse 14 in the text. It says, stand therefore. There is the purpose we learned that we cannot go on the offense at the expense of the defense. We don't need to go out looking for trouble, looking for conflict, looking for enemies, looking for manifestations of the spirit world. We don't need to go out performing exorcisms. We simply need to be prepared for when the enemy attacks us, prepared for our spiritual battles, to be able to stand. Number two, we saw that we need the whole armor of God. That was the emphasis in verses 10 to 13. The whole armor. And we saw that the whole armor is in Jesus Christ. This was, in fact, the armor he wore. There's a direct cross-reference to Isaiah chapter 59, verse 17. It is Christ who put on the breastplate of righteousness, the helmet of salvation. This is the suit of armor that he wore and that he passes on to us. So simultaneously, Christian, this is hard to grapple with, but we understand it this way. Simultaneously, we are covered in the armor of Christ. If you are a Christian, you're covered by his armor. And also, you daily put on the armor of Christ and live out the realities of your salvation. So there's the indicatives and the commands, indicatives and imperatives in Scripture. And then we looked at the first three pieces of the armor. We saw that the belt of truth holds our life together against the attack of Satan's lies. The breastplate of righteousness protects our vitals against the attack of unrighteous temptation. And the shoes of the gospel of peace provide stability against the divisive attacks of the enemy. And so here we go. We pick up in verse 16 to look closely at three more essential pieces of armor. So look down at the text with me. Ephesians 6, 16. It says, In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. So piece number four is the shield of faith. Shield of faith. Paul prefaces this next piece of armor with a phrase. We see it in the English Standard Version. It says, in all circumstances. Do you see that there? The Greek uh, phrase there is, ain pasin, uh, which is, could be in all or above all. And I think it's better to translate it above all or in addition to all take up the shield of faith. Because what's interesting about this piece is that all of the other pieces of armor that came before this one uh, were pieces of armor that were attached to the body, right? So you have a breastplate, you have the shoes, um, you have the, uh, why am I blanking? The belt. That'll hold your life together, the belt. So you have the belt, the breastplate, and the shoes. These are pieces that are attached to the body, but the shield is in addition to, the shield is an outside piece of equipment. 
an outside defense. So we take that up in addition to the pieces of body armor. Now, what is this shield? What is this shield? We've got to understand the Roman shield. This was not a small, round, Captain America-type shield, okay? The word is thurios. It was a body shield. The, the root word is thura, which meant door. So this shield was the size of a small door. The point of this shield was to protect the whole man. They were made from wood planks covered in leather, embroidered with metal to fend off javelins and arrows that were thrown towards you. Now the enemy shot fiery arrows sometimes. And the purpose of those was to, as they stick into the wooden shield, it would inflame the shield and break them down. So soldiers would soak their shields, their thurios, in, in water before battle, so that when the darts hit their shield, they would be extinguished. And that's the very scenario that Paul's describing here in verse, six, verse 16. He says, Christian, it's important for us to take up our thurios in order to extinguish the flaming darts of the evil one. Now you can imagine the scene. Maybe if you've seen an ancient war movie, the sky darkens as the arrows ascend up from behind the enemy. And then they descend like a swarm of bees all around you. And if you're not behind your thurios, your shield, you will be struck down and inflamed. And what is our shield? What is the shield that covers us, that protects us from these flaming arrows? It is our faith. The shield of faith. Now what is faith? What is it? Hebrews 11.1 1 tells us what it is. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. The conviction of things not seen. See, faith is more than just a rational assent to facts. It's more than just an empty belief. Like, like reciting science or history facts. Faith surrenders to its object. Faith wholly trusts upon the strength and substance of its object, that which is not unseen. Or that which is unseen. So we understand saving faith in the Scripture, it is a whole life trust in the person and work of Jesus Christ. He is the object of our faith. So it's whole life surrender to Him. Trust in Him. 1 Peter 1.8 says it this way. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. So let me ask you today. Do you have saving faith? True faith in Jesus Christ? Everyone in this room might say, oh, I believe that Jesus Christ lived, died, and rose again, according to the Scriptures. But do you love Him, though you do not see Him? Do you believe in Him with joy, inexpressible, and filled with glory, though you don't see Him right now? Faith, saving faith does that. Now, this faith is a gift from God. It's not something that we can muster up within ourselves. Ephesians 2 tells us, By grace you've been saved through faith. And it's not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. 
And it is only by this faith alone that we are saved, that we are justified and counted as righteous before God. It's the means of our salvation. Romans 4, 3 and verse 9 says, For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. Romans 5, 1. Therefore, since we too have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So faith is... Faith alone, sola fide, is the only way by which a person can be saved. But understand this. Faith is not only the means of our justification. It is also the means of our sanctification. That is, the Christian life does not just start by faith, but it continues and endures by faith. Faith is not a one and done moment in your past history. It is daily, whole life surrender to Jesus Christ. Paul tells us that King, or he tells King Agrippa in Acts 26, we are sanctified by faith. He quotes Habakkuk in Romans 1, and he says, the righteous live by faith. And he says to believers in 2 Corinthians 5, we walk by faith. This is ongoing in the Christian life. It's not a, a momentary emotion. But it's whole life trust. Every step forward in the Christian life is a step of faith. And every attack in the Christian life is a threat to your faith. It's going to hit your shield first, to use the illustration. You know, that's how it worked with Adam and Eve. Did God really say? Can you really trust Him? The Lord? You don't see Him. Will you still believe and follow him even when blank happens? These tests and attack hit us daily in a variety of ways from a variety of different angles. And unless we are covered by our thurios, our shield, we will be hit. But here's the motivation. If we hold on to the faith, if we stand behind our thurios, we're covered by the shield of faith. True faith, though tested, it will endure. James tells us that, James 1.3. True faith, though tempted, will overcome. 1 John 5.4 tells us that. True faith will hold on tightly to its object, Jesus Christ, the founder and the perfecter of our faith. Hebrews 12.2. True faith will endure. Christians will take up the shield and endure behind it. But understand a fake faith or a phony faith, it is a faulty shield. And it will crumble. It will easily become inflamed. And you will fall. A faulty faith, a fake faith that is not truly surrendered to the Lord Jesus Christ, but trusts in another or something else. A faith maybe that you've built up upon those good works or a faith that you think has been passed down from generation to generation. If if it's not your whole life surrender to Christ, then it is a faulty faith. It's a fake faith. And when the tests come, when the faith is challenged, when it's attacked, that is most often when it falls. I've seen it happen before. One book One book that this person read 
by some random author dismantles everything that they've believed about Jesus Christ. After one book, a coworker offers to buy you a drink and explain her life's philosophy. Then three months later, you're in an adulterous relationship, ready to walk away from everybody and everything you previously knew. One difficult church experience. One difficult church experience. And now this person doubts the authenticity of their faith entirely. It just took one pot shot from the enemy. Just one arrow. To inflame and burn down their faith. But not the Christian's faith. Not a true faith. If we are to endure, if we are to overcome, then we need to stand behind the shield of faith, the true faith that is given by God and that we hold on to until the day of glory when we see him. First John 5, 4 says, Everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our what? Faith. Take up that shield and do not let it go, Christian. When attacked, stand behind your thurios. Hold on to that whole life trust in Jesus Christ. The shield of faith. Number five, the helmet of salvation. The helmet of salvation. Verse 17a says, and take the helmet of salvation. Now we have to note the order of the pieces that are listed. There's a logical sequence to them. The last three pieces here, the shield, the helmet, and the sword, would naturally be the last that the soldier picks up before he goes into battle. These are the final three pieces. And and with each piece comes a sense of urgency and an anticipation that the battle is, is drawing near. So when the soldier takes up these final items, he could probably see the enemy marching toward him. At this point, the adrenaline kicks in. The war is real. The battle is coming. We need to get ready. Take up these final pieces and get in line. In essence, is what Paul is saying. So, what is the helmet for? Well, the helmet protects what? The head. The mind. It's often very uncomfortable, but it's necessary. It's important. Helmets, especially in Roman times, were not comfortable at all. That's why they were often the last piece to be put on. They didn't want to be wearing that helmet through travels to the battlefield. Helmets provide a sense of security, assurance, and hope. You know, as a parent, when you're teaching your kids how to ride a bike, or anything with wheels. (laughs) What is that one piece of equipment you want to make sure that they're wearing? It's the helmet, right? To protect their head. It gives you, as an apparent, a sense of security and assurance that even though they might get hit or even though they might fall down, they'll be okay because they're wearing their what? Their helmet. Now, what is it that provides great security and assurance in the Christian life? What is our helmet? Our helmet is what? Salvation. Specifically, the hope in our salvation. 1 Thessalonians 5.8 says this, But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. 
See, the helmet of salvation is security. It's the security a believer has in the promises and the character of God. It is the assurance that He will save us in present trouble and from future doom. And who is it that secures our salvation? Remember, it's the Lord Jesus Christ. He put the helmet on first, didn't He? His own, brought, his own arm brought Him salvation, Isaiah 59, 16 says. And then Jesus Christ doesn't save us and leave us to ourselves. Okay, I've saved you, now you figure the rest of the Christian life out. No, no, no. He saves us and sees us through to completion. Philippians 1.6 says, He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So Christian, understand this. From your election before the foundation of the world to His crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension 2,000 years ago, from your conversion in this life, the moment you became a Christian, to your glorification in the next, He sees your salvation through from start to finish. This promise, Christian, this assurance in our salvation is what gives us great hope. It gives us great hope that He will see us through to the end, to eternal life. 1 John 2.25, the Apostle says, this is the promise that He made to us, eternal life. We're going to get there in Christ. Jesus Himself said, John 10.28, I give them eternal life, they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of My hand. That is a great promise, great security. 1 Peter 1.3-5 says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He's caused us to be born again to a living, what? Hope. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Who by human power, no. Who by Tesla's power, no who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. There is our hope, secured by God's power. And in this, verse 5, you rejoice, though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. See, what gives the believer security and assurance a sense of hope, even amidst life's incredible difficulties, it is the the helmet of their salvation, the promise that God will see them through all the way to the end. Life is hard. Life is hard. We're we're experiencing hardship now, and it, it gets worse in some cases. We're often tempted to just give up and give in, to despair But we, Christians, need to brand these promises on our forehead and remember them. The hope of salvation will help you stand so that you'll not fall to the crushing blow of despair. You know, I'm reminded of John Bunyan's classic, uh, The Pilgrim's Progress. Incredible story of the Christian life, an illustration of it. Along their journey, Christian and hopeful, they're captured by a giant, and his name is 
despair. Now the ruthless giant beats them. He mocks them. He leaves them so injured that they can't get themselves up off of the floor of his dungeon. He taunts them and says, take your own life, for it would be better for you to die than to live and for me to continue to torture you. To the giant's surprise, though they are tempted, and though Christian considers it, they would not take their own life. But they remained, remained patient and waited on the Lord. Perplexed by their endurance, the giant of despair has a conversation with his wife named distrust. And in the conversation, distrust, his wife says this. Interesting. She responds and says to him, I fear that they have hope. That someone will come to save them, or perhaps they have an instrument of hope already on them. It's interesting, that very night, just before daybreak, Christian comes to this joyous realization, and he says this, What a fool I am to lie in a stinking dungeon when I might instead walk in liberty. I have on my chest a key called promise. And this key will open any lock in Doubting Castle. Sure enough, promise, the key on his chest, was the key to unlocking the shackles of doubt, the gates of fear, the dungeon of anguish, and the key to their escape from the land of hopelessness. SBC, Summit Bible Church. There's a biblical principle here. Hebrews 10.23, let us hold fast to our confession of hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. Hold tightly, take up the helmet of the hope of salvation, trust in the promises of God to see you through, and wear that helmet to withstand the attacks of despair from the enemy. Number six, the final piece of armor. The sixth piece is the sword of Scripture. The sword of Scripture. Look at 17b. We need to take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Now, it is interesting that only the last piece is a weapon. And it has both a defensive and an offensive function. See if I can get this Greek word right. It was called the makaira. It was a short, double-edged sword. And this, this sword was sheathed into the belt until the enemy came close. It's more of a jabbing object. It was for hand-to-hand combat. To swipe away the enemy jabs. And then when the opportunity presented itself, to thrust in for a lethal blow. It was a strategic weapon that required skill for you to wield. Now Ephesians 6.17 calls it the sword of the Spirit. The sword of the Spirit. This tells us its source and its power. See, the weapon comes from and it is infused with the power of God, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is God. So this is not a physical sword that's only able to inflict physical wounds. This sword slays souls. This sword pierces hearts. It cuts open the mind. It slices and dices Lofty arguments, 
worldly philosophies, and the heretical lies of the evil one. This is an extraordinary spiritual weapon. And what is this weapon? Paul states it plainly. It is the word of God. The word of God is the extraordinary weapon with which we defend against the attack of Satan's lies and heresies, but also defeat them. We deliver a striking lethal blow to those arguments with the sword, which is the word of God. Understand this, Summit Bible Church. This is not just an old book. This is living and active. Sharper than any two-edged sword. Piercing to the vision of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow. And discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. This sword is sharper than any surgeon's scalpel. It's able to cut into that which no physical instrument can. The soul. The spirit of a man. It's an extraordinary weapon. And these are not just words on a page. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, The Word of God was breathed out by God. All scriptures breathed out by God. 2 Peter 1.21 says, No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from who? God. As they were carried along by who? The Holy Spirit. This is an extraordinary weapon. An extraordinary tool in the Christian life. The enemy can't beat it, can't outthink it, can't outsmart it, can't undermine it, can't defeat it. The Word of God will endure forever. So how are you with the sword? Do you have the, skill, do you have the skills to wield it? Do you know it well enough to use it in your daily battles? Now the Greek word used for the Word of God is interesting. It's not logos, which is the typical one. In the beginning was the Word, the logos. The Word was with God, the Word was God. The, the logos is a more general term referring to the whole catalog of truth in God's Word. To make a, a statement, this is the logos of God. But the word used here for the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, it's rhema. Which is more specific. The Apostle Paul is saying... These, he's referring to specific passages, specific verses or words in this book that you can use skillfully when you're attacked. So we see this exemplified perfectly in Jesus Christ. Do you remember when we referred to his temptation in Matthew chapter 4? Jesus was attacked three times by Satan. The first was physical temptation. The second was a heretical attack. Satan kind of twisted the scriptures. And then the third was a temptation of power. And in response to each attack, Jesus Christ gives a specific word that addresses the attack. A specific defense. He quotes a, a rhema. A, a word from the scriptures. This is exactly what it looks like to take the sword of the spirit. And to use it. It requires both scripture knowledge and skill to be able to apply it in the appropriate situation and against the appropriate attack. This is what Paul is talking about in 2 Timothy 2.15. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, 
rightly handling the word of truth. We know that a weapon in the wrong in wrong hands is is deadly. We know that an abuse of scripture is unhelpful, can be deadly. But rightly handling the word of truth has incredible power. Not just for preachers who preach it, but for Christians like you and I in our daily lives fighting sin. It's a powerful, powerful sword as we engage in the spiritual battle. And again, this is not just something for pastors to rightly handle the word of truth, to be able to skillfully wield the sword in in daily battles. You have the same copy of the scriptures that I have in front of me. You have the same word from God. You, Christian, Christian mother, Christian father, Christian grandmother, grandfather, Christian child, Christian teenager can read this book, study it, know it, memorize it, and use it and be a skillful soldier with a great weapon. So how are you with the sword? Do you know it well enough to wield it in battle? What rhema, what word would you go to when a Mormon neighbor attacks the deity of Christ? A co-worker questions the legitimacy of that outdated Bible you're holding. Or when a professor tells you that everything in this world came about by chance, what rhema do you go to? What word do you have? What passage will you reference Verses memorized to stand against each specific attack. How about when you're tempted to sin? How about when you're tempted to be anxious? What rhema do you have to fight that temptation? To lose your patience? To be lazy? To lust? Where will you go? Do you have a rhema, a word from the scriptures memorized, and that will be useful and helpful when you're attacked with that temptation. Psalm 119.11 says, I've stored up your word in my heart that I might not, what? Sin against you. The word of God is a living and active sword, sharp, a deadly weapon that can be used to help you fight sin. So I want to encourage you to do this. Write down that sin that you most often battle. The one that hits you every day. The one that you're tempted to go to daily. And I want to encourage you, exhort you even, to go to your concordance and find three to five verses that specifically address that sin. Read them, study them, and memorize them. And then use them the next time the temptation hits. I want to also encourage you, exhort you even, to write down the three most common objections to Christianity that you hear from coworkers, from neighbors, from news media, from whoever. Write down the three most common objections. Write them down and then go and search the scripture for the answer. Memorize the reference. Know the passage. Be familiar with it so that the next time you interact with that individual, you can take them to that passage. The scripture as a defense to the argument. Christian, can you wield the sword? Are you using 
the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Every day. Will you read it, dwell on it, memorize it, become familiar with it so that you can use it when you really need it? The Word of God is living and active. Watch the sword do its work in your life. Watch it transform your sanctification when you give your life to knowing this book and using it every day. Um, Six valuable pieces of armor. Really, you can't replace or leave behind any of them. We need them all to fight the good fight of faith. We need a belt of truth to hold our life together against the attack of Satan's lies. We're being lied to all the time. And we need the belt of truth. We need the breastplate of righteousness, especially when there is so much unrighteous temptation out there. We need to hold closely on the righteousness of Christ and manifest its fruit in our life. We need the shoes of the gospel of peace, the source of true peace. Real reconciliation is in the gospel. We need to hold true to that gospel. Hold fast to it. Put on those shoes so we have stability against the divisive attacks of the enemy. Oh, the shield of faith is so critical. It covers us when the enemy throws pot shots, arrows, fiery ones to try to destroy it. We need to hold on to the shield of faith to cover the whole man. We need that helmet of salvation that provides great security and assurance against the temptation to despair and to lose hope in the Christian life. And we need a sword, a living and an active sword, a sword that can defend us and then strike a lethal blow against the temptation, or sorry, a lethal blow to the attacks of error that we see all around us. Christian, will you put on these pieces of armor? Will you take them up daily in your fight? Will you be prepared for the battle that we are in, the war that we are in? And will we take them up together as a church, side by side in battle? I'm reminded of those ancient war movies where you have the Greeks or the Romans even, and they have their thuriases, and there's a, just a wall of them because they're side by side, all together, making a massive wall of defense against the attacks of the enemy. That's how the church should be. That's how we should see the armor of Christ, is that we all take this up together to stand together against attack. We need each other to keep each other accountable, to help remind each other of the pieces of armor that we need to take up daily. To give encouraging words, words of affirmation, words of exhortation, even admonishment. So that we can stand in this fight, especially in this evil day. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all, to stand firm. Let me pray. Father, we, we desperately need your help. We need these reminders. We need your strength, strength found in Jesus Christ. 
to be strong, Lord, and then to stand in this evil day. Lord, we need each other. We need brothers and sisters in Christ that can hold the ground next to us, that can stand with us. Lord, we have a, we have a seriously deadly enemy. We have an enemy that prowls around like a lion seeking someone who he can devour. And there are spiritual forces underneath him that are working and, uh, in a variety of ways against us, God. Lord, we're attacked every day, whether it's uh, through media, temptations that we see on billboards, in our social media, on our phone. Lord, attacks from people or through people that we interact with daily. Even the constant pressure and increasing pressure that we feel as Christians living in today's society. God, we need these pieces of armor to stand. Lord, help us take every single one of them up to put on the whole armor of God, to not trust in human resources, to not trust in our own strength, but to take up Christ's armor so that we can stand. Lord, we want to be a people that you find standing in the last day. Lord, if you were to come tomorrow, I pray that you would find us, Summit Bible Church, a church that's standing against the enemy. God, I pray that we would love your word, that we would prioritize it, even in our day-to-day. We would make a habit of reading it, studying it, memorizing it, and using it in the Christian life. Thank you for this text. Thank you for these reminders. In Jesus' name, amen.